0: We're looking at the destruction of Jerusalem before it's destroyed, through the eyes of Luke, next, here on Abounding Grace. It's one of the more important prophecies that Jesus gives us here in the Gospel accounts. Luke chapter 21 is where we're at today. And we're looking at verses 5 through 33, a message called The Destruction of Jerusalem. Please join us from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
1: Now in verses 25 through 28, Jesus tells the significance of all this. He says... And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and upon this earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things to come which are coming upon the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your head because redemption is drawing near. Now, beloved, this is the paragraph that people have difficulty with. How can this apply to the fall of Jerusalem when it is so obviously got to be applied to the second coming? He talks about signs and stars and moons and the sun. It talks about the shaking of the powers of heaven. It talks about the Son of Man coming in the cloud of power and glory. It is obviously talking about the second coming, they say. Well, my friends, it's only obvious if you read your own meaning into these words, rather than to let the Bible define its own words. Do you hear me? It is only obvious applying to the second coming if you read into it what you think these words mean, rather than letting the Bible explain these words and these phrases. For instance, Luke's version is an abbreviation again of the interpretation of Matthew 24, 29, and 30. So if you would, please go back there with me. Verses 29 and 30. These are old, this is Old Testament language that would have been unfamiliar to Luke's Greek readers, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, and immediately, of course, is a key word here, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the Son, of, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, let's restrain ourselves from trying to read back into this text what we want it to mean and see if the Bible can help us understand these phrases because these are used in various places throughout the Bible. In fact, whenever these prophetic figures are used in the Bible, sun darkened, moon doesn't give light, stars falling from the sky, they are always used figuratively, never literally, never, never literally. These phrases are biblical phraseology that describes spectacularly the catastrophes that are connected with God's historical judgment upon nations in space and in time. And let me show you a couple places. Turn to Isaiah 13. In Isaiah 13, you have a prophecy concerning God's judgment on ancient Babylon. Where is Babylon? It's no more. Babylon is gone. This prophecy came true long before Jesus was born. So here you have in verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah 13, a prophecy of the destruction of ancient Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make a land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil, and that's the world of Babylon, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Now... When the Persians wiped out the Babylonian Empire, did the sun go out? Did the moon disappear? Did the stars fall? Well, yes. Figuratively, not literally. And we'll see what the figures represent. But first, turn to Isaiah 34. And here you have a prophecy referring to God's judgment on Edom. Does anyone know where Edom was? Does anyone care where Edom was? It was just a one camel town, and it is long gone. Isaiah 34, verse 2. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and His wrath against their armies. He's utterly destroyed them. He's given them over to slaughter. Verse 4. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All of their host will also wither away as the leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree, for my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend, for judgment is upon Edom, and upon the people whom I've devoted to destruction. Now, when God destroyed Edom, did the heavens roll up like a scroll? And the sun go out and the stars fall? Figuratively, yes. Literally, no. What does the figure mean? Well, let me give you one more example first. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, people ask Peter, what is wrong with everyone speaking in tongues? Are they all drunk? And Peter stood up and said, no, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And besides, this is what Joel said in the last days, that the moon will turn to blood. Now, on the day of Pentecost, when God baptized his church with the Holy Spirit and then began baptizing apostate Judaism with fire, did the sun go out literally? No. This is a powerful, spectacular imagery that is used over and over again in God's Word. Now, if we were to say concerning Edom, God's going to judge you, and the sun's going to go out, and the stars are going to fall. Babylon, God is going to judge you, and the stars are going to fall, and the sun is going to go out. Israel, God is going to judge you, and the sun is going to go out, and the moon is going to go out, and the stars are going to fall. Really? What happens when the sun goes out and the stars fall. Beloved, it's lights out. And that's the point. God's judgment is going to come to Babylon, Edom, Egypt, apostate Israel with such heaviness and severity that it's lights out for those nations. It's like the termination of their entire history. That is why this phrase is used throughout Scripture, not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense. Also in Matthew 24, verse 30. And then the sign will appear of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, again, the New American Standard Bible's translation of verse 30 is a bit convoluted. Let me give you a more accurate and clearer translation. When you read the NSA, the NAS, verse 30, it seems to say, then the sign will appear in the sky of the Son of Man. So the impression you get is that there is going to come some miraculous sign in the sky. That is not an accurate translation of the Greek according to Marcellus Kick. Here is what the Greek says. You may want to write this in the margin of your Bible. And then the sign will appear of the Son of Man in heaven. Did you see that? It's not the sign that is in the sky. It is the Son of Man that is in the sky sitting at the right hand of God. The sign is on earth in the destruction of Jerusalem. And that, beloved, is the irrefutable proof that Jesus Christ reigns. He prophesied exactly what took place. It took place just as He said, and here is indisputable proof that Jesus reigns in heaven over everything that happens on this earth. Notice Jesus uses His favorite designation for Himself as the Son of God always implying sovereignty and authority for himself. He sits at the right hand of God. And then notice Matthew 24, 30, it says, And then the sign will appear of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth. I wonder why he says tribes. He, he, he doesn't say nations. He, he doesn't say peoples. Do you know anything about tribes in the history of Israel? Of course, the 12 tribes. And also the word earth there can be just as easily translated land as in the promised land. And then all the tribes of the land shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now that is an allusion to a prophecy in Zechariah 12, verses 10 and 11 where God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. Anything about Jesus' death that requires piercing? And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. So here Jesus is saying... When you see the sign that I reign and that my authority is supreme in the destruction of Jerusalem, the tribes of Israel throughout the land will mourn as they have never mourned before over me, whom they have pierced. Now, what about this coming in the clouds? You see, Gary, it's really strange. You're not taking anything in Scripture literally here, yes? Yes? I'll admit that's true. The idea that is going around in so many Christian circles, including Reformed circles, is that every word in the Bible must be taken literally. And that is a non-biblical principle. Where in the Bible does it say, take every verse literally? No one does it anyway. I don't care who it is. And you're not supposed to. You're supposed to consider how words are used and what kind of literature is being presented. Poetry, historical narrative, parables. For instance, the Bible says, the Lord shall cover us with his feathers. Now, are you going to take that literally? There are figurative and there are literal statements. Every word in the Bible is to be taken truly. But it all depends on the nature of the passage you're studying and how those words are used throughout Scripture as to whether or not you take them literally. And this thing of coming in the clouds, what's he getting at? It says, the Son of Man will appear coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Here again, this thing of clouds is used in various places in the Bible figuratively denoting the manifestation of God's glory. One of the first places was when the children of Israel were being led to the wilderness during the day by the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory. And what was that great glory cloud? It was the visual display of the magnificent glory of Almighty God and the guarantee of His presence with Israel. Time and again, in the Old Testament, clouds were identified with God, symbolizing the display of His majesty and His glory and His judgment and His power in His activities on earth. And it is not literal. I don't have time to go into any more examples, but look up Isaiah 19.1 when you get home and see God coming in the clouds in judgment. This is figurative language to show God coming in history to intervene and display His sovereignty and His authority and His justice and His grace. One last thing for today. Look at Luke twenty-one twenty-eight. Something Matthew doesn't bring up. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your de- redemption is drawing near. You disciples are about to be delivered from the opposition, and slander, and persecution of apostate Judaism. You are about to see the explosive growth of the gospel of redemption throughout the world. And he advances this thought in verses 29 through 33 through the parable of the fig tree. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves... You see it, and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He is saying here that all of these events that he's describing... Connected to the destruction of Jerusalem are signs of summer, a time of growth and of fruit and productivity and harvest. In other words, the parable is telling us that the fall of Jerusalem marks the beginning of a great future for the church of God on this earth and the bringing forth of a global fruit to the glory of God. It marks the beginning of a worldwide harvest of people from all the nations of the world to God's feet. And in verse 31, he says to his disciples, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Recognize that Jesus is on the throne, and he is establishing his kingdom on this earth over all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, Jesus is instructing His disciples to pay close attention to these times, to know what's happening around them in terms of God's Word, not what they see going on in their environment. Listen to Matthew Henry. As in the kingdom of nature there is a chain of causes, so in the kingdom of providence there is the consequence of one event on another. When you see a nation filling up with a measure of their iniquity, We may conclude that the ruin is nigh. When we see the ruin of persecuting powers hastening on, we may thence infer that the kingdom of God is near, that when the opposition given to it is removed, it shall gain ground as we may lawfully procrastinate, prognosticate the change of the seasons, when second causes have begun to work so we may, in the disposal of events, expect something uncommon when God begins to act, and then we stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Let me simplify this and then we'll close. When you and I look at what's happening around us, When we read the newspaper, watch television, talk to one another, and simply observe what's going on around us through the lens of the Bible, you will see things other people cannot see. You will see trends that others cannot see. When you interpret life in the terms of the Bible, you will be able to make forecasts and predictions other people cannot make. And that is why Jesus is telling these people, pay close attention to what's going on around you. Observe life only through the eyes of Scripture and be prepared. Now remember what I said at the beginning of my sermon that Matthew Henry could call the destruction of Jerusalem a miniature judgment day? Well, he said that because the destruction was a type and a figure of the day of the judgment day at the end of the world when Jesus comes. That will be infinitely more destructive to those that reject Jesus' absolute authority and salvation than was the destruction of Jerusalem. Those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by faith, that proves itself in love and righteousness, will not only escape all judgment for God on that day, but will receive infinite, glorious, eternal life and divine blessings in the new heaven and the new earth. But the destruction of Jerusalem shows us in an unforgettable way what God can literally do to a nation or a culture that deviantly rejects his authority and sovereignty and salvation. And beloved do not think it can't happen here. If all of this could happen to Jerusalem, the capital of the theocracy, the city of God on earth where he built his house, in the promised land of God's covenant people, it can happen in any nation and in any culture on the face of the earth, including the United States. And notice how God destroyed Jerusalem. War foreign armies, terrorism, civil conflict, as well as turning the forces of creation against Jerusalem, as well as famines and storms and plagues. And many of these things could be in place today, right now, ready to be turned loose at God's command on this country. North Korean nuclear bombs, the bird flu, 10 years of Katrina or or desert-like Uh, weather here in California. Social wars ignited by the frustration over the immigration issue. Notice that most, if not all, the Jews who perished in the destruction of Jerusalem were members of the church. And the thing that is important to keep in mind is that the church in the U.S. today is in worse moral and spiritual condition and more blatantly defiant in the rejection of Christ's absolute authority than was the church in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Even apostate Jerusalem did not put up with homosexuality. Therefore, beloved, The only thing that can save America from God's judgment is the only thing that could have saved ancient Jerusalem. Repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want your children and grandchildren to experience something like, or you don't want them to experience something like Jerusalem experience, get busy spreading the gospel. Be a witness in every area of your life. Spread the gospel, not only by word, but by books and tracts and CDs. Keep a supply of these on hand in your car next to your front door and give them away to people. Spend your money on spreading the gospel. Spend your time on spreading the gospel. And don't let up the rest of your life unless you do want your children and grandchildren to go through a Jerusalem experience. If devastating judgment does fall on our country in in our lifetime. Beloved, don't despair and don't look at it negatively. Don't panic. When you see these things take place, recognize that summer is near and God is clearing the land. That the kingdom of God is near, that your redemption from humanism and tyranny is near. And remember what Peter warned his readers about the effects of the fall of Jerusalem in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And let me read that to you before we close. First Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised. At the the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also, as the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if someone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in His name. For it is time for judgment to begin with a household of God. And if it begins with us first, what what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right.